It jumps around a little bit, but we're going to start in Exodus chapter 4, starting in verse 29. So if you would, read along with me here. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And they believed, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that He had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest He fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them, and you shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer a sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it, and pay no regard to lying words. Skip down to verse 19. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. This is God's word for us tonight. There's a book that I do not pretend to have read, but I'm going to mention it to you because of something that happened in it. But a guy named Thomas Kuhn uh, wrote the book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And if you know anything about me, you know I didn't read that book. Uh, But in that book, he coined the phrase paradigm shift. Uh, Kind of a familiar phrase, I I think, I hope. 
Uh, and in that book, he, he defines paradigms like this. He says this. Paradigms are constellations of belief that orient how we perceive our world and determine what we consider knowledge and truth. Hear that again. Constellations of belief that orient how we perceive our world and determine what we consider knowledge and truth. So I think a simple way of of putting that in other words is your paradigms are how you see the world. Your paradigms are the stories that you are believing about life, the world, and yourself. We are all living and believing and choosing to live and believe certain stories about life, about the world, and about ourselves. And so a paradigm shift then would be when something happens or you have an experience or something that causes us to see the world, to understand life, to understand ourselves in a different way. I think for most of us, college was probably the first time we had a real paradigm shift, right? Because you come to college and for most of us, it's the first time that we're out on our own. We're sent out into the world. We're out to do life on our own, to make our own choices. It's up to us largely to know and to choose what stories we're going to live and believe about life, the world, and ourselves. And maybe we get presented with stories that we hadn't considered before. Maybe uh, stories that we had heard before become all of a sudden more attractive or more um, intellectually attractive or whatever. And so we make these choices about how, what stories we're going to believe about life, the world, and ourselves. And for some of you, it's been exhilarating. It's been freeing. You love it. It's been an adventure. For others of you, it's been nothing short of terrifying. You've been paralyzed by it. You've been confused by it. And you just want somebody to tell you what to do. That was me in college, by the way. Still others of you, that journey has already been filled with shame and regret. But the fact is, we are all living some story or stories about life, the world, and ourselves. And what many have pointed out about this passage, this section here that we read tonight uh, in Exodus is that it is the hinge point of the story. It's the hinge point of the story of the Exodus. It's the hinge point of the story of the lives of the people of God. You could even go say so far as to say it's a hinge point for the story of Pharaoh. And so I want to look at three things here. Uh, I want to look at Pharaoh's story. I want to look at Israel's story and I want to look at God's story. And I want to think about these kinds of questions as we look at them. What happens when the stories that we've believed about life, the world and ourselves stop making sense? What happens when the stories that we believe about life, the world and ourselves get turned upside down or when they leave us wanting or when they come up empty? What happens? So we'll look at Pharaoh's story, Israel's story. And God's story here, okay? First one here is Pharaoh's story. Pharaoh kind of, at least personally now, burst on to the scene of the story as Moses and Aaron go for the first time before him to, to do and ask what God told them to go and ask him to do. Uh, years ago, one of my, one of my favorite columnists to read um, is in the New York Times, a guy named Ross Duthat. Um, years ago, he wrote an article exploring kind of the why so many people were fascinated with uh, Oh, why am I forgetting his name? Mr. White from Breaking Bad, right? The dad from Malcolm in the Middle. That's how I know him. Um, so he wrote an article just talking about how why people loved this character in Breaking Bad. Uh, because it, basically that Mr. White in Breaking Bad, he kind of showed forth the phenomenon of the anti-hero. Right, where you take a flawed character, usually a severely flawed character that you're not supposed to root for, but you make him the protagonist. 
And you can't help but root for him, right? And this is what one of the things that he says in the article. He says, bad guys don't just get the best lines in dumb action movies. They get the best lines in Shakespeare and Milton, Dickens, and Cormac McCarthy. And good guys, good characters, good people can easily seem simpering or sentimental or one-dimensional by comparison. I think he's on to something there, right? And we kind of see that happen in this chapter. Pharaoh bursts on the scene. He's bold. He knows who he is. He knows what he stands for. And he says, who is the Lord? I don't care. You just imagine. We Look, we don't know what his prior relationship with. We know Moses grew up in the palace. We don't really know what their prior relationship was, but it's safe to say they probably knew each other. And Moses shows up and says, hey, look, the God of this people, he appeared to me. And Pharaoh's like, I don't care. What are you doing? Get out. And it's almost that moment, you know, it kind of sticks out there in verse two. Who is the Lord? And it's got you kind of imagine Moses and Aaron kind of go like. Is lightning about to strike? Okay, it will uh, figuratively. Pharaoh isn't just the anti-hero in the story, though. He's the anti-God. He's the anti-Christ, if you want to put it that way. He, everything he is, everything he does, everything he stands for, stands in direct opposition to God. That is his place in the story, and that's going to continue to be his place in the story. He stands in direct uh, opposition to God. And you can see, and as we'll see as we continue in the coming weeks... His opposition to God directly affects the people of God. It directly and tangibly oppresses the people of God. It causes further suffering. They feel it before this episode is even over. They feel that. He's the anti-God. His bold opposition against God directly causes the people people and Moses to question what they've done. Like, why did we follow this God's advice And so did you notice, actually, as we read the passage, Pharaoh is not the only one who asks, who is the Lord? The people in Moses don't say it directly, but that's basically what they're saying, is it not? We started out reading that the people believed Moses, and we know Moses has believed it because Moses has gone back to Egypt. But both the people and Moses are left going, what are you doing? Who are you? Why are you doing this to us? And this is what I think we need to see at the outset and why Pharaoh plays such a large role in the story for for us and for them in that day. Is that for any of us who are Christians or those of us wanting to explore faith in this life, we have to see, we have to acknowledge, we have to explicitly acknowledge that there are forces arrayed in the world around us, constantly assaulting us from every side in direct opposition to God. And if they're arrayed in direct opposition to God, they're arrayed in direct opposition to any that would follow. Jesus said as much, y'all. He said as much explicitly. But the thing is, is this started back in Genesis chapter 3. The question, who is the Lord, started in Genesis 3 when the serpent shows up and he looks at Adam and Eve and says, Did God really say you can't eat any of this fruit? What was serpent doing? He was asking Adam and Eve, who is the Lord? Who is he to say this? Who is he to tell you that? 
And it's interesting, you go all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation 12, we see that same serpent. We are told it is that same ancient serpent in the form of a dragon in a vision that John sees in Revelation 12. And he is called the accuser of our brothers. And he accuses them day and night before our God. Y'all, this is how Satan works in the world. And it is how he has always worked. He was a liar and a father of lies from the beginning, Jesus says of him in the Gospels. This is how he works. And for those of us seeking to follow God, seeking to see God and follow God in our stories, in our own stories, we have to know, we have to acknowledge that there is continually an anti-God at work in our stories as well. You can't get away from it. You can't. And sometimes, look, sometimes it's direct opposition, right? And this is becoming more and more the case in our world. We live in a post-Christian culture. If you haven't arrived at that conclusion, you need to get there. We live in a post-Christian culture, right? And we know this. More and more people have no problem with telling you, I am not a Christian, nor do I want to be, nor do I care about you being one. Try evangelism in that context, right? And to be orthodox, do you know what to be orthodox means? It means to believe what the Bible actually says as historic Christianity has century upon century for 2,000 years. To call yourself and to be an orthodox Christian, to actually say that you believe explicit things that the Bible says to keep itself logical, will only warrant you ostracism today. You know this in the university setting, right? We know this. But I think there's, there's also subtle opposition as well. That we have to maybe even be more careful about. I think it can be even more deadly. Whether it's our politics, right? Because what, it's really easy for our politics to say, look, just take that part of your faith and put it back here right now. This election's more important. We haven't seen that in America, have we? <clears throat> anyway, maybe it's tolerance. Maybe it's just this cultural flow or feeling that, like, look, what you believe is good for you. That's great. But what I believe is good for me. That sounds great, and I'm not doing it justice, being very straw man here, but that statement is one that's in direct opposition to God. It's subtle, but it is. Listen to how Paul puts this in Ephesians chapter 6. Maybe a familiar passage to you, but Paul in Ephesians 6 says this, put on the whole armor of God. Now, most of y'all have heard this like in a VBS setting, and you have very nostalgic memories of this maybe. But listen to why Paul says we should put armor on. This isn't like Fortnite, like doing a different skin. Am I right, guys? Oh, um, anyway. I don't know where that came from. I'm sorry. I play too much Fortnite. Put on the whole armor of God. Now listen, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Who wants to be a Christian now? Who leads with that at the evangelism rally? I want you to be honest. At least some of you. I think some of you in this room probably are willing to be honest. You think that's hokey. Be honest. Put on the whole army of God, schemes of the devil. Devil's out there, he's going to get you. Here's the thing, though. If only being a Christian in this world were as simple 
as watching a movie and then hashtagging the title of said movie as an evangelism tool after it. I'm not saying that's wrong or bad, but only, if only being a Christian in this world was that easy. If only the atrocity of human trafficking, if it was so easy to confront it just by wearing a red X once a year. But we know it's not that easy, right? If only Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech tweeted once or so times a year could wipe away the generational tears and scars that black Americans have experienced before the country's founding. If only gun control and abortion legislation could lead our country to love life instead of reveling in death like it does. If only... The hashtag MeToo movement and sexual assault awareness seminars would eradicate toxic masculinity and even make one ounce of healing to the shame and the pain that so many of you women carry in your souls. Again, none of those things are bad. If only they did what we wished they did. What does Paul say in Ephesians 6? We do not wrestle... Against flesh and blood, there is something much deeper, much more sinister, and spiritual going on. It's the arc of the Pharaoh's story. It's an arc that continues throughout the rest of the Bible. It's an arc that continues throughout the rest of history until Jesus himself comes back and puts it to death once and for all. We cannot ignore it. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled, right, was to make the world believe he didn't exist. We can't ignore this part. So we must learn, we must begin to learn Pharaoh's story. But let's move on to Israel's story. Verse 31, at the end of chapter 4, right, we leave. Moses goes to the people and they believe him. It's one of the things that Moses was worried about, you remember? But they believe And here's the question I want you to think about. This is the question that strikes me when I read this story. And this is what I want you to think about. Wouldn't you have thought that the bare fact that the God of the universe himself had shown up would have been enough to help them persevere through at least one trial? Did it? As soon as life gets harder, they want to give up. We're done. We're done. This is too much. And now here's the question. Why? And this is my suggestion to you. It didn't fit their story. It did not fit the story that they were living and believing about life and the world and themselves. Even the God of the universe himself showing up in this world in time and space was not enough, at least at this moment, to break through that story. Why would that be the case? Let me just state it simply. 400 years of slavery. 400 years of slavery. That's a lot. It's no longer just a historical thing. It becomes a spiritual DNA thing. They were slaves. It's all they knew. Martin Luther King Jr., I don't know if you've ever seen this video before, but it it left me speechless the first time I saw it. But Martin Luther King Jr. was asked one time this question, and I am quoting the question by a white reporter. 
What is it about the Negro that every other group that came to the United States and an immigrant somehow got around? Is it just the color of their skin? Now listen to how Martin Luther King responded to this. White America must see that no other ethnic group has ever been a slave on American soil. That is something no other immigrant group has had to face. America freed the slaves in 1863, but they gave them no land or anything economic to stand on. It was freedom and famine at the same time. Now catch this one. It is a cruel jest to tell a bootless man to lift himself up by his bootstraps. It is a cruel jest to tell a bootless man to lift himself up by his own bootstraps. Now, in the context of the civil rights movement, that is a bold statement. And this is what I think Martin Luther King was saying very masterfully, I might add. Because he also says in that same quote, look, I believe all of us should try as hard as we can to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. But to tell a group of people who have for centuries been systemically oppressed and ostracized and stigmatized to pick themselves up by their own bootstraps is, as he said, a cruel jest. And as I might add, it would be to ignore the story. We all have a story. We all have a story that we're living and believing about the life, about life, the world, and ourselves. And so in the context of the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King said, was saying that would be to ignore the story the reality of where this people has been and where our country has been. And so again, let me ask the question, going back to this passage, shouldn't God showing up have been enough to help them persevere, at least through one trial? It wasn't. And I might go so far as to suggest, I don't think God expected it to be. Because look at you how he responds. In patience and mercy and grace, right? Um, he t- actually, God told Moses in chapter 3, verse 19, I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless com- compelled by a mighty hand. God knew what was going to happen in this first encounter. And he let it happen. God knew what was going to happen in this first encounter. And he let it happen. What are we supposed to learn from that? At least one thing, this, that I want to hone in on. There is no such thing as untested faith. There is no such thing as untested faith. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2, he says, look, he tells the church there at Thessalonica, he says, look, we know that your faith is real because one, you accepted our word as the word of God. Two, you imitated other believers. And three, you suffered for it. We know that your faith is real because you suffered for it. Peter in 1 Peter 1, he says, look, you are being guarded in the faith, even as you have been grieved by various trials, as were necessary to reveal to you the tested genuineness of your faith. James, maybe you all know this one. uh, James at the opening of his letter says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Who would do that? As the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, again, maybe some of you know that the Bible says things like this, but if you really stop and are honest about it, you're like, why does the Bible say things like this? One stab at it this. The trials of this life 
are God's appointed means for us to grow and be conformed into the image of his son. The trials of this life are God's appointed means for us to grow and be conformed into the image of his son. Remember, it was it was Jesus himself who said in this world, you will have tribulation, but overcome. But. But take heart. Sorry, I almost lost it. I went to seminary, I promise. But take heart. I have overcome the world. He also said, look, know that when the world hates you, when the world hates you, not if, know that they hated me first. He would go on to say to look, to believe in me, to follow me is nothing short of denying yourself and taking up a cross daily. Jesus didn't beat, about, beat around the bush on this subject. And this is, I really want you to ask yourself this question. I want you to be honest. Did you ever think that following Jesus would really ever cost you anything? I don't think I did, if I'm honest. I want you to imagine a story. Story time. Um, I want you to imagine a story, hopefully not one that's too close to home. But I want to imagine that you grew up with criminal, hateful, abusive parents. Okay, maybe like Harry Potter underneath the stairs, right? But your parents were Death Eaters, not the Dursleys, okay? Harry Potter, hey, I made it better. But one day you're told, you're actually given undeniable proof that they're not your parents. They actually stole you. And your real parents are the richest, most powerful, most charitable people in the world. And they're looking for you. Now, I want you to imagine for a second. When your Death Eater parents get home and they walk in the door, are you going to just say, hey, found out y'all weren't my parents. See ya. It's not going to work like that, is it? Now, clearly, you would now see the world and life and yourself in an entirely new light. But the question is, what is it going to take for you to feel and believe that story is true? Illustrations can only go so far as pretending you have death eve parents, right? You would have to learn how to live into that new story. You'd have to learn how to have the you'd have to have the opportunity to live into it. You'd have to learn um, how to leave your old evil parents and you'd have to learn what it's like to be in the presence of your new loving, caring and selfless parents because you've never been in the presence of anybody that was selfless and loving and caring. It would take time. I want you to look at Moses because Moses actually gives us a peek here of what's happening because Moses got a head start on the people, right? Last week we saw it in Exodus chapter 3. You look at verse 22 of chapter 5 and it almost looks like Moses is traumatized all over again. Right, traumatized by his own failure all over again. Why did you even send me? I knew I was going to screw this up. But remember, what was God doing with Moses in chapter 3? In chapter 3, Moses looked at God and said, Look, I can't do this, therefore I'm not going to do this. And I suggested to you last week that the whole point of Exodus chapter 3, that encounter with God, was God was trying to bring Moses to the point where he would understand, Yes, I can't, but God can, therefore I will. And I think we get a hint that Moses is starting to believe that. Why? Because what does Moses do after he fails? The first time we saw him fail in the story, he ran away. 
But here, in verse 22, he turns to God. He fails, and he fails miserably, and he turns from that to God. I would suggest to you that, the, that only the person who truly believes, I can't, but he can, so I will. The only, only the person that truly believes that can honestly and confidently look at God and ask why. I would suggest to you Moses is asking God why from a standpoint of faith. Alec Motier puts it like this. If we cannot blame God... Neither can we trust him. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? If we can't blame God, then neither can we trust him. He goes on to say, if God was not there when tragedy happened, when you suffered, when he or she got sick or died, when they got divorced, when he or she did that to me, how could we be sure that he's here now? If he wasn't there in the trial, if he wasn't there in the pain, if he wasn't there in the suffering, how could I ever know that he's here now? And how could I ever trust that he's going to do something about it? I suggest you Moses was getting there. He may not have fully understood it, but we read there in verse 22. So Moses turned to the Lord. This is the beginning, the hinge point of Israel's story and turning to the Lord as well. So let's finish up with this. God's story. God's story. So it's Pharaoh, the whole kind of, the, the, the question that sticks out in the, in the whole passage is Pharaoh's question, who is the Lord? And God answers that question. Did you see that? But he doesn't answer Pharaoh. He answers his people. And you look there, look at verse three of chapter six. The first thing that God says as his answer is, look, I appeared to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as God Almighty. In the Hebrew, maybe it's something you've heard before. It's El Shaddai. El Shaddai. This is his name that God has used of himself in Genesis. Look, when I appeared to them, I appeared to them as El Shaddai. I told them my name was El Shaddai. We don't know exactly what that means, but we can pick up kind of a common thread when we look at all the times that God identifies himself as El Shaddai. The common thread is the God who is sufficient to meet our needs. That's That's the context of him saying he's El Shaddai. You've got to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. Abraham who's old and childless and doubting. And God says, Abraham, I am El Shaddai. You got Jacob in Genesis 43, overwhelmed by the odds against him and sending his sons to Egypt because of famine. And God says to Jacob, God, Jacob, I'm El Shaddai. Jacob again in Genesis 48, leaving the promised land once and for all to go for shelter in Egypt. And God says, I am El Shaddai and I will surely go with you and I will surely bring you back. You have Joseph in Genesis 49. Joseph, whose brothers sold him into slavery. And in Genesis 49, we are told it is El Shaddai who exalted him to the highest places of power in Egypt. Look at verse 3, though. He says, but my name I am, or Yahweh, that name I did not make myself known. And so what he's saying right now is you've got to tell the people this. I am El Shaddai, but I am also who I am. We looked at this last week. Meaning you are fully going to know my name and you are fully going to know I'm not just sufficient. I am more than sufficient to meet all of your needs. That's why I'm here. 
Now, here's the question. How are they going to know that? We get it in this whole spiel here in in the beginning of chapter 6. Did you notice that he said, I will, seven times in verses 6 through 8? Look over those with me. Verse 6, I will bring you out from under the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with outstretched arm. Verse 7, I will take you to be mine. I will be your God. Verse 8, I will bring you into the land I promised, and I will give it to you. I am the Lord. Now, here's the beautiful thing. What is God doing here? He's telling them a story. He's telling them a story. He's telling them his story. He's telling them what he's going to do for them and where he's going to take them. He's telling them a story of everlasting joy that though they cannot see it, it is on the horizon. My girl, Kendra, where are you at? I told her I was going to shout her at. My girl, Kendra, she pointed out an artist to me a week or two ago. Uh, Strawn is a New Zealand folk psalmist. That's how he refers to himself. Um, he's got this song called Out of Exile, and it's beautiful. And this is how it goes. I'm not going to sing it. I'm going to read you the lyrics. <laughs> Did you know that love seeks? It seeks your heart, and it reaches out as the world breaks. It breaks apart. But some don't want love. Some don't want peace. Some don't want rest for you. Some just want tears. And some just breathe hate. Some just put pressure on the wound to see the pain. But I need you to know that there is love in me. I am calling to you. Come back from the woods. Come out of exile. I love that. Because I think that's exactly the song that God is singing in this moment. Come out of the woods. Come out of exile. I need you to know that there is love in me. The whole story hinges on the answer to the question, who is the Lord? And the answer that we get here is he keeps his word. He feels our woes. He sets us free. He brings us close to himself and he will eventually lead us home. That's who the Lord is. And if you think about those things, you understand, right, that we get the fullest and most tangible expression of those things in Jesus Christ. Who is the Lord? He keeps his word so much that the word became flesh. He feels our woes so much that he took them on himself and let them kill him. He sets us free by submitting to the chains of death, but death could not hold him. He brings us close to himself by living in us by his spirit. And he will eventually lead us home because he is coming back. This is where I want to leave you tonight. And I hope you're seeing this. Because the more you see how God acts in this story, I can promise you something. You might just see and believe how he will work, how he might already be working right now in your story. And so I ask, do you not at least want to see if it's possible? It's an invitation for all of us. Let's pray.
Father, as we've asked almost every week, we pray that you would tell us the story. Invite us in. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe. The story that you are telling us. That there is a love in you. If we would only come out of exile. If you would only set us free. We pray that you would. In Jesus name. Amen.